Than what baptism is picturing. It pictures somebody dying to themselves, arising again, the picture of what Jesus Christ did in the tomb, in the grave, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And baptism today, both of the candidates come for baptism today, Christopher and Jacqueline, both of them are already saved. They're not getting saved today. They've been saved, and they're both going to give you testimony when they got saved. Uh, we'll ask them about that. And they'll share with uh, you when they got saved. So for Baptist, we, we get to actually watch our name today. They're saved by faith. Then we baptize, and they're part of the church. And uh, Faith Baptist Church, our name, represents exactly what's, what's going to happen this morning for these two candidates. And uh, so I'm excited for them. Uh, they're going to share a little bit of their story, how they came to the Lord, uh, when, when it happened, where it happened, and then... After that, we're going to baptize each of them in profession of their faith and in obedience to the Lord's command. Uh, so Christopher is going to go first, and then Jacqueline will go second this morning. And uh, I am a little excited about baptizing Jacqueline, not going to lie. Praise the Lord when your children are one to obey the Lord. And uh, so I'm excited about that. But it doesn't take away from Christopher at all. Uh, I am equally as excited for Christopher to take this step on his own. Uh, something that he wanted to do. He came to me about it, and uh, I've had the privilege of working with him, discipling with him a little bit. And uh, so at this time, I'm going to ask Christopher, you want you go ahead and join me down here? All right. And Christopher, why don't you share a little bit of the story? And uh, it's, it's not too long. It's only about seven pages. <laughs> just, kidding. just kidding. Go ahead. Good morning. He, he is risen. When I first heard the story of the lost sheep among the 99, I wondered, was I chasing God all that time, or was God chasing me? My parents did their best, but I grew up in a culture that was swayed by the chaos of the 60s and 70s, and it really had an influence on them. While I was Mormon as a kid, my divorced family it really became disconnected from Mormonism, and my parents influenced me more in new age ideas, like the power of your mind to get what you want. Morality was just a subjective idea of creating your own life with your own will and not with God's will. Where was the reverence for the sacred? I didn't know that I was seeking the wisdom of a mentor, someone wise who could actually walk me through and disciple me. The closest I got was a wonderful elementary school teacher in fifth and sixth grade who inspired me to excel in running, in which I sought meaning through sweat and pain and accomplishment. I loved Christ in the New Testament in high school, and I attended Mormon seminary as a student. And both my parents also dabbled with attending Christian churches, but it was really no truer than any other book or idea that came my way. It was just like a truth buffet. It was like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I was still really open as a high school or college freshman for the Campus Crusade of Christ. They had a ministry and they gave out pamphlets. And I wasn't shy to actually reach out and talk to that representative. I met him in person at the uh, Union Center for, at my university. And he ended up jamming the sinner's prayer down my throat, so to speak. And 
it just gave me a bad taste. It felt forced, and obviously nothing changed in my life. I woke up the next day, and Christianity was like a been there, done that kind of thing. So then I was determined. I was going to leave behind my culture, kind of like the Beatles, <laughs> and look to the gurus of the East, the Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism. I even studied philosophy and religion in, in college, determined to seek the truth. I looked under every stone outside of my Christian heritage. 25 years later, I have seemingly tried everything and settled on a nebulous idea of spirituality. I had a fondness for Jesus and believed some kind of impersonal God creator and in life after death, but Christ was not my king. He was just like maybe a wise teacher. Finally, by accident, in 2018, while listening to a podcast, I was invited to accept Christ as my savior. And I actually didn't hesitate. Uh, at the moment, I jumped in and then wondered what I'd actually done. <laughs> what did this mean? Without a direct mentor, I slowly poked around and tried to figure it all out. I felt I needed to study the Bible, and a hunger for that soon emerged. I found daily Bible scripture podcasts where I learned that I needed to find a local church. Imagine, I had never thought of attending church. <laughs> And my first time attending church alone, I was filled with emotion, and I just cried and cried. I couldn't believe that I had found a new home in Christ, and my old identity was dissolving right in front of my eyes. Pastor Joe asked me on the first service here at Faith if I had ever been discipled, and I didn't even know what that meant. Here at Faith, with the right discipleship from Pastor Joe and others in the discipleship program, I learned of baptism and its importance as a public expression of my faith. From being an early lone wolf, internet-based Christian to my small group fellowship at my Baptist church in Salt Lake City, and really finally through the FBI program here and the discipleship-focused program at Faith, I have grown immensely in these four years. Looking back at this pattern of searching and searching for truth, I didn't realize I was really searching for a person. That's Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth, and truth is a person, not just an idea. I was broken and lost and have trampled many along the way, including breaking up my family in my dissatisfied, lost life. In seeking truth, I was seeking love. How nice to know that no human relationship can ever express perfect love. I was hungry for perfect love, even more than for truth. Now I, walk, I ask to walk in God's forgiveness and humbly ask the forgiveness of those that I've also heard in my life. Glory to God that love like truth is a person. Perfect love and perfect truth, I was chasing them down all my life. But God finally found me a broken, imperfect, and lost sheep, a sinner, and is finally bringing me home. Well, Christopher, upon uh, your statement of faith here before these witnesses, and in obedience to the Lord's command, we're going to baptize you now. So I'm going to have you step just a step this way, right about here, and uh, go ahead and grab your nose there. So in obedience to the Lord's command, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
buried in the likeness of his death. Raised to walk and in this alive. Thank you. Thank you. She's going to be hard to see. I can hold her up if you want to see her. There. Um, Jacqueline is uh, one who is always opinionated and always has a story to tell. And uh, so, Jacqueline, why don't you tell the story about when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Where were you and what happened? I was downstairs with my grandpa, and he told me if I, if I would like to do that stuff, so, you, like, um, like doing your thing when you, like, like, like what? Um, like asking what? Like, um, like telling him that I, like, obey his word and everything. That you were a sinner? Yeah. Yeah? And what did Grandpa have you do? He told me to say stuff, like, <laughs> he told me to stay, say, uh, say things that I had to repeat, the things that he told me what to do when, um. He led you in prayer? Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. There's a lot of you out there right now. So, for a nine-year-old to stand in front of everybody and tell what she's done, well, the 24th she'll be nine. <laughs> So, pretty much a nine-year-old, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> See, she's nervous. So, so you you uh, were in Sunday school. Yeah. And Grandpa shared the gospel. Yeah. And he asked you if you wanted to be saved, and you said what? Yes. And you prayed with Grandpa to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, right? Is yeah. that what you did? Yeah. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's easier when Dad does it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you were to die today, where would you end up? In heaven, and you know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, because of your profession of faith and obedience to the Lord's command, we're going to baptize you now, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ready? Buried in the likeness of His death, and raised to walk in newness of life. Here, what? Isn't that a great picture? Death, burial, and resurrection. It's on the sign right behind me, and that is what's pictured in what transpired today. And now you are witnesses of their decisions to walk in newness of life. The, baptism doesn't save them today. What it does is it, it's the beginning of their public ministries. It's the beginning of them being able to serve God in a way that glorifies him in obedience to what his command is. His command is be saved, be baptized, and live for me. And today is the commencement, the beginning of their living for him. So let's pray together and just thank the Lord for the opportunity. Let's also pray for the service today. Uh, you guys are going to be singing here in just a moment, standing and praising the Lord. And remember, we are praising a risen Savior today. The other saviors of other religions, they're not alive today. They, they died. You can visit their graves. But if we were to fly to Jerusalem and we were able to go there today, guess what I can show you? An empty tomb. There's no body there. There's no person there. The person of Jesus Christ has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, 
today, and we are celebrating. And he said, if I go away, I'm going to send another just like me to come and to take my place. And that Holy Spirit is in this room today. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So let's stand together, let's pray, and then you're going to sing here in just a moment. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to see baptism pictured in real life. Thank you for the decisions that were made already by these two. They didn't get saved today, Father, but they did take that step of obedience today. And just like Jesus Christ himself was baptized, he had no sin. He didn't need to be baptized for sin. He was baptized to begin his earthly ministry. And Father, these two today now get to begin their earthly ministry in a very public way. And Father, we thank you for the decision that was made in private, but the confession that was made in public. And the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is raised from the dead, that we can be saved. And Father, today we saw the picture of that death, burial, and resurrection right here in this baptismal, in this church. And Father, now I pray that we would celebrate what you've done for us, the great things that you have done for us, the great salvation you provided for us, and the great ministry that you've put before us. And Father, may we celebrate what your son did for us and the love of God that sent him. For God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die. And Father, we praise you that he is not dead today. He is risen, just as he said. So may we celebrate that this morning through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And may we glorify you, our Heavenly Father. And may you have the glory of what's done today. And all God's people said. Um, they actually put over the top of his cross. This is Jesus. What's the rest? King of the Jews. And they were mocking him at the, at the point, even at his death on the cross. And after Jesus' resurrection, there was a problem with the politicians. They didn't know what to do. The politicians had a problem. They got an empty grave and no body. They made sure that nobody would steal the body by doing what? I mean, how many of you have ever gone to a cemetery and saw guards guarding the tomb so the people didn't get out? Now, granted, I've been to Washington, D.C. How many have been to D.C.? And you've seen the changing of the guard. You know what? Those guards are not there to prevent the soldiers from coming out. Right? They're there to give honor to the ones that we don't know their names who have given their lives for our country and our freedoms. And you know what? I can appreciate those guards. They're not guarding the tomb so that people don't come out. They're guarding the tomb so that the tomb is dignified and respected by people. Because we live in a world that sometimes they don't respect everything. But yet this tomb is going to be different because they place the soldiers there for two reasons. They don't want the disciples to come and steal the body, but then they also articulate just in case he's right. Right? In case he raises himself from the dead, we're going to put guards there to prevent him from coming what? Out. Now, why would they think he had the power to do that? You ever wondered that? I mean, today we would think of this like if, if President Biden or our national security advisor would come up and say, you know what, we're going to be guarding this guy's tomb because we're afraid he might come back out of it. You know what he'd be on the national news today? The laughing stock, right? Because how many people have raised people from the dead before? How many people have raised themselves from the dead before? But what had Jesus already done? Lazarus? Jairus' daughter? Uh, Jesus has a history of taking dead people and bringing them back. 
So to make sure nobody steals this body, and to make sure he doesn't get out of the grave, we're going to guard a dead man's body. Now think on that for all. That, that's worldly wisdom, isn't it? You know what godly wisdom is? Come inside. Look, he's not here. He is risen as he said. And you know what? Risen indeed he is. So this morning I want to talk about our resurrected Savior a little bit. I want to talk about the empty tomb a little bit. And I want to do it in light of why. Because today we worship a risen Savior. He's different than every other prophet that's ever existed. You know where Joseph Smith today is? He's in a grave. His body's in a grave. You know where Muhammad is today? He's in a grave. You know where Confucius is today? He's in a grave. You know where... Pick your prophet. Pick your deity. You know where Jesus is today? He's at the right hand of the Father. His grave is empty. The empty tomb is there. So there's something different about Jesus that deserves respect and deserves to be looked into. And let's do that this morning because it's not worthy only on Easter Sunday, but it's worthy all the time. And today I want to show you how God's love reigned and ruined the first Easter. He realized everybody in the Easter story was trying to get rid of Jesus, and then once they finally got rid of him, they were afraid he was coming back. Every one of them in the story believed it, except for the believers. The believers went in the upper room, and what are they thinking? Now what? He told us to go in the upper room and wait. Wait for what? So 120 of them go into this room, and they sit there, and they're praying and waiting for who to show up. And what do they do when he actually shows up? You remember the girl who answers the door? She sees him, she screams, and she does what? Closes the door. <laughs> like, that's not possible. But it is possible. With God, all things are possible. So let's look at uh, a couple points here this morning. The first point I want you to see is this. There can only be one king. There can only be one king, okay? There can only be one king in your life, too. For 33 years, Jesus Christ walked on the earth while serving hungry, the hungry, healing the broken, delivering the oppressed, helping those who needed help. He announced the coming of his kingdom. He announced the restoration of all things to himself. He claimed to be the son of God. And many believed him to be a king at the triumphal entry. They laid palm branches down in front of him and cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they believed who came? Their king. The Jews were looking forward to him being their king. You see, at the time that this is all happening, this kind of thinking and teaching caused a lot of conflict in the time period in which Jesus lived. The Roman occupation of Jerusalem is there. The Jews in Rome already have kind of a shaky relationship, and it's kind of uh, as long as the Jews do what the Romans want, everything's good. If the Jews don't cooperate, then the Jews get punished. And the Jews are going to use this to their advantage to try to get Jesus in trouble. Herod is on the throne. He's a tyrant. He's consistently afraid that his authority is going to be undermined. Pilate, who is appointed by Caesar is in direct control of everything going on underneath the Roman kingdom. And the last thing he wants Caesar to hear is what? There's a new king in Jerusalem. So Pilate's in a jam. Herod's in a jam. 
these guys are listening to Christ. They can't find anything wrong with his what he's doing, with what he's done. They actually view the fact that he's been doing things that help the populace of their society. And in conclusion, Pilate himself comes to the point where he says what? I find no fault in this guy. So I'm going to give you an option. You can have Barabbas or you can have Christ. Good Friday, right? And in Good Friday, we found out that we represent Barabbas in that story. That the one who was deserving of death and the penalty of death, the one who committed the crimes, the one who did the wrong, was Barabbas. And as they heard, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas, and then they hear the next cries, crucify him, crucify him, Barabbas knows his day is done. But then God in his great love towards us thought it fit to have the crowd and the priest and the chief priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all go and say, you know what, we, we want Barabbas. Tell the crowd we want Barabbas. And when they were crying out, we want Barabbas, it was actually the redemption of Barabbas they were calling for. We want to save Barabbas. We want to kill Jesus. And Pilate says, but Jesus has no fault in him. Barabbas is the worst of the worst. And the people cried out all the more, we want Barabbas. Then what shall I do with Christ? And the crowd yelled what? Crucify him. And in that moment, an innocent man died for the guilty. And a guilty man was set free. A man deserving of death was set free. And a man who knew no sin died for the sins of the world. And God allowed this to happen because of his great love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start at verse 32. And I want you to see as we go through this passage of scripture, there can only be one king. And uh, I'm going to grab something here before we get there. All right. The Bible says this, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over there and over his head, and they put a charge against him, which read this, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Seems logical, right? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. Yet he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe. The cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is riddled with ridicule and disbelief. The soldiers are mocking Jesus by placing a sign over his head, calling him the king of the Jews, even though they didn't believe it. Those who pass by mock Jesus, telling him to save himself, and yet... They didn't really believe he could. They passed by and they even ridiculed him that he's the son of God. If you're the son of God, you can do miracles, then come down off the ground. Did they know Jesus could do miracles? Sure they did. The priests and the teachers are mocking Jesus by telling him 
to get off the cross if he really was the king of Israel, then do your job and save yourself and us. Well, there's four groups of people here. There's the soldiers who are mocking him. There are the people who are passing by that are mocking him. There are the priests that are mocking him. And then the very teachers of religion themselves are mocking him. None of them understood that the true test of Jesus' power and authority is not in his ability to save himself from crucifixion, but it's in the ability of him to overcome the death that the crucifixion would result in. It's the resurrection that mattered, not the death. It's appointed unto man how many times to die. Aren't you glad you're going to experience it just once? Maybe if you're here and you're of the generation of the rapture, you'll never taste death. There is going to be a generation, the Bible teaches, that never tastes death. But if you're not part of that generation, you're going to die one time. I'm glad we don't have to die over and over and over again. Jesus' ability is in the overcoming of death, not in overcoming crucifixion. Crucifixion was a means of torture. Sometimes we miss the proof of Jesus' lordship because we're expecting him to prove himself in certain ways when in reality he does something totally different. Many individuals have decided in their hearts that they're never going to trust Jesus unless he meets their expectations. Unless Jesus heals their relatives or gives them a job or stops world hunger, or writes something in the sky, they're never going to trust him and obey his authority in their lives. They're not going to allow themselves to see him as king unless he does what they want him to do. And you know what? I'm afraid this mentality is sometimes the same kind of struggle that plagued those who were at the death of Jesus Christ. It's also the same mentality that drove Herod to be part of the death of God's Son, when we demanded Jesus to prove, or when he demanded Jesus to prove himself in his terms, we rob ourselves of seeing his work in our lives. God's will is to do, both the will and to do of his good pleasure, not ours. Herod is not the last one to be threatened by the kingship of Jesus. He was not the only one to struggle from the idea that Jesus is in charge and he's not, the truth is that this is still the idea that we struggle with in our time today. You see, it's, it's kind of like this. There can only be one king, right? If this chair represents the kingdom, there can only be one king. And when I sit down in this chair, who's that take out? I'm king. I, I get to dictate what happens. And in my unsaved life, before I got saved, this is me. I'm king. I'm in charge. I'm controlling everything. But you know what I found out later on? I'm not in control. Can I fix any of the sickness in my relatives' lives? Can I get a single person to change the direction they're going? Can I manipulate and, and coerce people to do what I want them to do? Maybe. But only as long as I have influence in their life. What happens when I go away? What happens when I die? What happens when I get sick and I can no longer influence them? You see, I, I only control me, but I think I control everything. The reality is, when I get out of the chair and I get off the throne of my life and I put Jesus Christ as my king and my savior in my life, now who controls everything? Who can heal people? 
Who can take care of my problems? Who can I give my cares to? Who's willing to listen? Who wants to know what my inner struggles are and wants to help me overcome them? Who wants to show me his way, his truth, and his love? And you see, when we get off the throne of our lives and we allow Jesus to have the throne, we actually get free. I don't have to worry about running everybody else's life. I don't have to worry about fixing all the problems in my life. I can cast all my cares on him because he cares for me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. How many of us like to be king again? Thanks, God, for fixing my problems, but now I've got this. You go on vacation. Right? right? I've got this. You fixed it all. And then it takes about 3.7 nanoseconds for us to mess it up again. And then here we are getting out of the chair. All right, God, you're, you got it again. You take it. You take control. Autopilot. Click. We're good. We're going to get there somehow, some way. And you know what? There's this. God's in control. Nope, I'm in control. Nope, God's in control. Nope, I'm in control. And how many people get caught right there? Let's say it together what's on the screen. There can be... Oh, I messed it up. There can only be one king. You know what? This morning, there's a king sitting on the heart, sitting on the throne of your heart. This morning. Is it you or is it Christ? If it's you, get out of the chair. Be set free. Allow Jesus Christ to take control. Move out of the way. But the second thing is this. I want to show you this. Love can overcome even death. You say, you know, if I give up control of my life, then I don't really have control of it. If I don't have control of it, what happens, what, what happens if the, the future is bad and, and, and I just can't do it? You know what God says? Trust me. If I created the universe and everything in it, do you think I can take care of your problems? If I could speak and the world comes to existence, what problem do you have outside of that sphere that I can't handle? The answer is nothing. Because God loved us, we are set free. Three days after Jesus was crucified, he laid in the tomb to everyone's shock and to everyone's amazement, even his disciples. He appears in bodily form in front of his disciples first. This had never happened before. They had seen him killed. They knew he was dead. Some of them put his body in the tomb themselves. And they know how dead he was. The Bible says Jesus was so marred that he barely represented a human being. Think of that. The swelling and the, and the, the, the mass of blood loss and the, the, the ribbons of flesh that would have been from the, the whipping of the cat of nine tails 39 times across his back. And all these gory details that the Bible tells us about, all of them are there to show how wounded this man was for our transgressions. But the best part about this man is he wasn't simply a man, was he? He was God in the flesh dwelling among us. He's Emmanuel. They knew he was dead, but now they're eating with him. They're walking with him. They're talking with him. Jesus' love for humanity had overcome death and defeated evil once and for all. And his resurrection is the proof that was indeed needed to show that the true king has control over everything, including death. 
there's a renowned famous artist named Paul Gustave Doré. Anybody ever heard of him? He would live from 1821 to 1883, and he lost his passport while traveling around Europe. When he came to a border crossing, he explained his predicament to one of the guards, giving him his name, or giving his name to the official. Dorje hoped that he would be recognized and allowed to pass because of him being an artiste. Everybody knew who he was. Unfortunately, the guard had no idea who he was. He was not as popular as he thought at the time. And as he tried to cross, the guard wanted to see his papers. And although Dorje tried many times to cross the border claiming to be the person he was, many other people had tried to cross the border claiming people who they were not. So the guard, unconvinced, said, I need proof. And proof it will take. Dorje insisted that he was the man that he claimed to be. And finally, he says, all right. We'll give you a test. If you really are Dorje, then if you pass our test, we'll allow you to pass. Handing him a pencil and a sheet of paper, they told the artist to sketch several people standing by. Dorje did it so quickly and so skillfully that the guard was absolutely convinced that he was who he said he was. His work confirmed his word. Jesus' work confirmed his word. He said, you kill me, you put me in the ground three days, I will rise again. Guess what he did? We're not celebrating anybody else rising three days later today. We're celebrating what Jesus Christ did. Though many doubted him, many mocked him, death didn't even have the final say. Scripture today has the final say. But it was love that day that had the final say. God loved the world so much that he gave who? He gave Jesus Christ. Here's the proof. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be eternally separated from God, but should have eternal what? Eternal life. By the way, what's the opposite of eternal life? Eternal death. Death in the Bible equals separation. Separation from heaven, separation, by the way, not from the presence of God either. I know that's been taught some, but guess who guess who's in hell? The presence of hell or the presence of God is seen in hell. Who made the angels? Who made man? Whose image is God create did God create man in? His own. The image of God is in hell, and it's going to be in the lake of fire, and they're going to be tormented. But the fact that they could have been saved, but they all chose to rebel. Hell was made for the angels. Death was made for man. And when death and hell are cast in the lake of the fire, the Bible calls it the second what? The second death. The place prepared for angels, the place prepared for man, both of them spend eternity apart from the blessing of heaven that is to come. After Jesus resurrects, his final words to his followers reveal the truth behind the Easter story. Matthew 28 and verse 18, look what it says. And Jesus said, for he came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Jesus. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What did I do this morning at the beginning? Baptize those two in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then it says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, for behold, I am with you how often? Does that mean today? Does that mean in your problem? How can a dead Jesus be with you always? He's not dead. He's not dead. Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Easter is not, a, or Easter is the day that Jesus was given all authority on heaven and on earth. And no matter how many doubted, he is the king of the Jews. No matter how many mocked him, he is the king of the Jews. He was able to rescue himself and now the entire world because of what he's done. Today we have a death penalty, don't we? And then the death penalty, when somebody commits something so heinous, we kill them. In the death penalty, one person dies for who? Himself, right? One person. Why? Is one life ever worth two lives? We would call that what? That's unjust. If, if, if I were to kill your entire family today because one member of your family committed a crime, is that fair or unfair? It's unfair. You know, from man's perspective, we say, well, because Adam sinned, that's not fair for us. All of us are now sinners because Adam sinned. It's true. But is God righteous? Is God just? Is he holy? Is he sovereign? And if God is righteous, holy, sovereign, and he decides who gets everlasting life, and he's the righteous judge, and I think his opinion matters more than ours. And you know what Jesus said, or you know what God said? I love the world so much, I'm going to send my, my son to die for who? All who are perishing. You realize John, even in the, the third chapter there of John, says this. Jesus didn't come to the, into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. He came that they might have everlasting so if the world's condemned already, why are we condemned? Because one man can die for one man. If a presidential pardon were to be given for a guy on death row, who's free? That guy. Did it change the fact that he's a criminal? No. Did it change the fact that whatever he did still happened? No. But he's set free. You know what an eternal sacrifice can do for mankind? You know what a man that has eternal life can do for people? An eternal Savior can die for all mankind. Because what can he give you? Everlasting life. Because where's Jesus today? He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He's alive. He's risen just as he said he would. His final instruction to his followers was to go into the whole world and make disciples he told them to spread the good news of his resurrection and love for all that would listen. We have been invited to teach the way of Jesus because it changes the world. It changes people. Then finally, let me show you number three. Let love reign in your life. Let love reign in you. You see, many times we think this is good for others, but if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, this instruction has been given to us as well. We are part of making disciples. We believe in the Greek word mathetes that is used in this 
passage of scripture, which means this. We are learners and we are students of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the ability to learn. We have the ability to grow. And if we are to allow ourselves to be students and learners of the way of Christ, then we're in a position where we can help others become learners and students as well. To be a disciple is to be a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus every day. Are there days that you fail? Yeah. Unless you're not like me. You're perfect. I fail. But you know what? There's a great verse in the Bible that helps them with failure. First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgiveness would be awesome, wouldn't it, by itself? But he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to give you forgiveness, and then I'm going to cleanse you. What does it mean to cleanse? I don't think anybody cleansed today. Did you start on the inside and wash yourself out? No, nobody did that. The word cleanse literally means to clean starting on the inside that works its way to the outside. You say, well, we can't do that. I can't, like, stick my hand through my chest to get to my heart. You know who can, though? God. God changes us from the inside out. There's another passage of Scripture that clearly declares this, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, because it's your reasonable service. And what's the verse going to say? For whom, what? What's it say? He metamorphosizes us. What's the word metamorphosis mean? The butterfly, right? The caterpillar goes in a cocoon, and he goes inside, and he transforms himself, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the changing of your mind. The metamorphosis starts on the inside and works its way out. Caterpillar goes inside a cocoon, metamorphosizes into a beautiful moth. No, I'm kidding. Butterfly, right? Monarch butterflies, and whatever color, they get these beautiful wings, and this beautiful transformation takes place. God says, I want to do the same thing in every one of your lives. I want to come into your life, and I want to transform you on the inside out. Man and religion want to transform people from the outside in. Religion is always man trying to get to God. You know what God says? I got a better way. How about I leave heaven and come to you? How about I meet you where you are and bring you to where I want you to be? Let me pick you up where you are in your sin and let me transform you into what God can do in and through you for his pleasure. I became a believer when I was very young. I wasn't fully aware of the decision I made at the time. In other words, I couldn't define propitiation. I couldn't have got up the day I got saved at four years old and gave you a 35 to 55 minute message. It didn't happen. How comes that happens today? Because God has been bringing me along from the time he came into my life. He's brought me along to where I am today. You know what? I'm glad he's finished doing the work, right? No. I haven't arrived. He's still working on me. And you know what? God's still working on you. I want to be a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better friend because of the decision I made to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So, as a final reminder, what we were given by Jesus Christ before he ascends into heaven is that he, Jesus, 
will always be with us until the very end. Maybe like, maybe today you feel like God is forgotten about you. Maybe you feel like God's a long way outside of your life right now. Maybe you think that God, that you've done things in your life that God would never accept or receive. I'm here to tell you today, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for everyone. He died for those who were sinners. And if you're in the room today and you've ever committed a sin, guess what that makes you? A sinner. And if he died for sinners and you're a sinner, then guess who he died for? He died for me. He died for you. You see, Jesus lives and dwells with those who place their trust in him. He gives them the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I must go away, so another like me will come, and he will indwell you. We have the Holy Spirit of God today, who is the expressed image of Jesus Christ, by Jesus' own words. And that means this, no matter what you do, no matter what you go through, no matter what you face, you're not alone in this journey. Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. And even if it looks like the world's coming to an end, Guess who's with us? He's with us always. I'm convinced in the room today there's two types of people. One, there are some here who have never made a decision to let love reign in their lives, to follow Jesus Christ. They've never surrendered. That's what it's really about. Who's on your throne? You or the king? There are some who have never surrendered. They're still sitting on the throne of their life saying, God, you can have this little compartment, but I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to buy, I'm going to sell, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and God, when I get in the jam, then you, you come and save me. It's like our Christian genie, right, in a bottle? Maybe you've been waiting on Jesus to prove himself. You've been praying for him to do something miraculous. You keep manipulating and wanting him to do what you want him to do, and he refuses to do it. He wants you simply to trust him, and you refuse to have done it to this point. Maybe you're expecting Jesus to come into your life and, and to make something radically different in your life right off the bat. Which he'll do, but he does it how? From the inside out, not the outside in. And if he does it on the inside out, which scripture all over the place clearly teaches, then all we have to do is trust him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? How'd you know that? Who told you? It's right here in his book. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man can come to the Father except through, he's the means. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 really gives us this concept. For by grace are you saved by means of faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man would what? We could do something about it. Wouldn't we brag about it? Think of the Mount of Transfiguration that day. Let's build temples to remember this place. It's just like, you missed the whole point. It's not about temples. It's not about the place of worship. You're with the Son of God. There's a second group of people here this morning, though. There are some here today who have trusted in Jesus Christ. But you've grown tired of obeying him. Or the message of the cross has gotten so mundane and so basic and so general that it's lost its luck, 
its luster. It's lost its charge. We come to Easter and we're like, I know we're just going to hear the same message we've always heard. Every year, they're going to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yawn, I've heard that for 30 years. Do you realize without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you have no faith? We should never get tired of hearing that we have a living God. I mean, imagine showing up. You know what? This year we're gathered together in the name of Muhammad, who is still dead. Or this year we're going to gather together in Joseph Smith, who is still in the grave. Where's the hope? But if we have a risen Savior and he's working in people's lives today, how can you not have hope? How can you not have peace? How can you not have faith in the one who overcame every obstacle known to man? And the biggest one is death. Has man ever fixed the problem with death? Guess who has? Jesus Christ. He's risen. And the fact that he's risen should excite us to the point that we want to invest in others the story that we already know. But you know what? Sin sometimes gets in our lives. It gets in our way. Doubt. Despair. Not getting what we think we deserve because we're a Christian from a Heavenly Father who has everything. And sometimes we blame God. He's not powerful enough. Or his story is not dynamic enough. Or it's just too simple, God. There's got to be more. We need signs. The Bible talks about that. If you need a sign, your faith is weak. Blessed are those who have faith and have not yet seen than those who have seen and yet not believed. Be careful what we ask for. But God in his great love says this, it's easy to renew Easter. Come back again, repent, and believe the first fruits of the gospel. What are the first fruits of the gospel? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Without that, you have nothing. And you know what? If we go back to the first fruits, then we can commit once again to live for Jesus Christ today. In a moment, I'm going to close with a word of prayer. You have a choice. The throne's right there. You can stay sitting on your throne or you can give the throne to Jesus Christ. But only one person can sit there. Only one person can be king. And if you're a believer, it's easy for us as living sacrifices, right? Romans 12. It's easy for us as a living sacrifice to decide, I don't feel like burning on the altar today. What do living sacrifices like to do? They like to crawl off the altar, don't they? They don't want to burn. They don't want to die. I don't want to... Jesus says, how often should we take up our cross? Daily, take up your cross and follow me. I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's a willful choice every day. It's your choice every day if you're going to sit on the throne and be on the altar of God or if God's going to be on the throne and God's going to use you how he wants. And I can tell you now, you're better off in the second position than the first. In the first position, you get your reward. In the second position, God can use you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Don't you want to be used by God? I think in every man, it's God has placed a desire in man's heart to want to do something great for him. Man by himself always wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. That's why we have team sports, right? That's why we like to do hobbies and groups. You know, 
I think racing. I think racing was invented when Henry Ford put the second car off the assembly line. NASCAR was born right there. Man's desire to do things together, to, as partnerships and teamwork, and all the things that we see in our world today that have this group mentality started in one place. God's desire for fellowship with His creation. It was not good that man should be alone, so He created who? God saw the need for fellowship in mankind. And mankind is always looking to put something in their lives that is going to give them satisfaction. That's going to give them validation. That's going to give them knowledge. That's going to give them truth. That's going to give them some sort of security. And you know what Jesus Christ is? All those things. He is all those things. He's the way. He's the truth. And he is life. And if you want to have eternal security, you want to know that God is with you to the end of the world, to the end of your life, then look no further than the one who was killed, who was buried, and he rose again. Jesus Christ. Who's sitting on your throne? Who's got control today? The Bible says we need to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. You willing to do that today? You see, this Easter, you may see the resurrection of Jesus Christ as proof of his love. And then you got the chance to allow his love to reign in your life. Will you do that today? Will you make that decision? I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have you raise hands. I'm not going to have you do any of that stuff. This is between you and God today. Nobody else matters. You know, you know when it matters to make a public declaration of what, what's happened inside? What did you see today? Baptism. That's the public declaration of the decision that's already happened on the inside. And they're coming forth saying, this is what I got saved. This is what God's done in my life. And now I want to live for him. That's what baptism is all about. But today, it's about who's sitting on your throne. Is it your will or is it his will? Is it your way or is it his way? Is it your life or is it his life? That's a decision between you and Thank you.